Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we cannot imagine a higher text than this that exalts you. And we're left saying, the praise of your glorious grace. To the praise of your glorious grace. God, it is texts and passages like this that leave us weak in our knees, that bring us to tears, and God, that has been used to encourage and to save. God, it is texts like this that we rejoice in. And yet some of us, we actually weep over because we have family or friends, co-workers who are not yet yours. And so, God, this gives us a great pause and concern and brings us to prayer. God, all things are from your hand, all of it because of your grace, all that we have, all that we receive. Every one of us who claims to be a believer, who rejoices in your grace, does so because of your grace. And God, we want that to be the same. We want more people to worship you because of your grace. And so we ask that you would continue to be gracious and make your grace known to those who do, do not yet know your grace. So, God, would you do that? Would you do that here in our midst? There's no doubt that there's someone here who is not a believer. God, would you do that in someone in here, in their family, and amongst their close friends and neighbors that maybe they have known and have talked with and gotten to know for many years? Bring us great joy this week, God. We pray specifically that someone would come to know you as their Savior and we'd be able to rejoice with the angels in heaven. God, would you do that? And God, would you allow us this time, this, these next few minutes, to, after seeing and reading this passage, would you be gracious to us to keep us alert to listen as the Spirit moves through the text? God, would you open our eyes to understand? Would you give us wisdom? God, would you please do this for us? We can read and we can scan our eyes over 
these words, but our, our minds are going ten other places all at once. And our attention is so quickly gone and, and, and we're drowsy and it's raining and it's cold and we're bundled up and we have hot drinks. And God, there's so many things that are, can be distracting. I'm distracting. I'm distracted. So God, would you please be with us? Would you do all of this for us? We can't do it for ourselves. We can't stay focused for this long. And so God, please draw us to worship. Keep us there. And God, would you be gracious to us, please? As we pray for this in the name of Jesus, who died on a cross for our sins. And for that, we are forever thankful. God, we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you, who do you worship? What is it that you worship? What brings you the greatest amount of joy when you think about it? Who is it or what is it? What, what is it that you like to talk with when you meet someone, when you see a close friend? What, what is it you share with them first? What is it that you are so often talking about, thinking about when there's downtime and no one else is around or you're driving? What are you thinking about? What drives you? What is moving you? What, what is it that you are worshiping? Paul, as he's writing this letter to Ephesians, we can speculate a lot. But I'm imagining as we read, and this introduction is so slightly different than some of the other ones. Here Paul gives a similar introduction, these first two verses. He tells us who he is, who he's writing to, and he gives a short message. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's almost as though something caught his attention in that introduction that we skip over so fast. Something catches his mind. Do you ever that ever happened to you? You're talking to someone and it's that thought jumps in your mind. You know you better get out before you lose it. I do that all the time. I pull into a parking lot real fast and whip out my phone to type something into a note-taking program, because I know if I don't write it down, the world will end if I don't write this down and figure this out. And I lose stuff all the time, and I think, this is the greatest thing. I have to keep this. I'm going to need this for preaching Sunday. I need this thought. And out the window it goes the next time something happens on the road or takes my attention away. But here I imagine Paul writing, and something in the introduction catches his attention. And it's as though he just explodes into worship. He's writing grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, dear brothers, I just want to say hello to you and God be with you. God. what? It, and it's like he just explodes. So who does he worship? He worships God. Who does he worship? He worships the God who elected, the God who is graced us with every spiritual blessing and the God who adopted and did all these things we've looked at for the last couple of weeks. And as Tim led us last week through some great passages, but sometimes some very difficult passages, uh, depending maybe on, uh, on how God has been uh, bringing you to um, doctrines of grace and uh, ideas of election. Those doctrines are hard, um, but how God is leading you and things like that. These are joyous texts. And here, as Tim said last week, this is not for us. It's all about God. It's, it's not, woo-wee, I'm elected. And look, I've got adoption and I've got blessings. Look at me. I've got all this. It's amazing. And sometimes we do it because it is amazing. And sometimes we need that encouragement. But we should be looking at it, I think, like Paul does as he's writing. What's the first thing he says in verse 3? Blessed. Praise be to God who has done this. And our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So there's no, no doubt there's blessings. But first of all, there's worship. Paul's theology of the doctrines of election, the doctrine of adoption, and all of these things led him to doxology. 
he praises God for it. Glory to God because of my theology that I'm about to expound. So our theology, when we read books, we read the scripture, should lead us to doxology. And our praise and our time of worship that we just had in singing, especially, should lead us also to theology. So both of those should be interacting together as we are worshiping God. That should drive us to wanting to know more about him. When you know more about him, that should drive you back to wanting to worship him so much more for who he is. But there's hang-ups sometimes. Sometimes we, we don't always want to be doing this. Reading this book, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You notice I'm flipping to the, to the end of my notes. That's never a good sign. J.I. Packer. He says that there are four truths that we have to. I a list of other four things. Like, four truths that grace, grace presupposes. And if these are not acknowledged and felt in one's heart, clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. So here Paul is laying out all of this grace that God has given to us. Has he not? All of this grace that Tim led us through last week, verses 3 through 6. And all of this grace that we come through this week, verses 7 through 10. And then the next week as we go up through four, verse 14. And, and, and even graces we see from a Trinitarian God, from all three members of the Trinity. Last week, blessed be the God and Father. God has elected from before the foundation of the world. God did this. And this week is Jesus has redeemed you by his blood. He has given you forgiveness of sins by his grace. And the next week is the sealing of the spirit on those who have been elected, those who have been forgiven, those who are adopted. So for us to understand this grace. We have to have these four truths. Grace presupposes these four truths. If we don't believe it, acknowledge it, feel it in our hearts. Packer says that clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. Four truths. Number one, the moral ill desert of man. The moral ill desert of man. Basically, your depravity, your moral depravity, your utter depravity. He writes, modern men and women, conscious, conscious of their tremendous scientific achievements in recent years, naturally inclined to a high opinion of themselves. They, they view material wealth as in any case more important than moral character. And in the moral realm, they are resolutely kind to themselves treating small virtues as compensating for great vices and refusing to take seriously the idea that morally speaking, there is anything much wrong with them. They imagine God as a magnified image of themselves and assume that God shares his own complacency about himself. We're not really as bad as we as maybe the scripture says we are or, well, we're not that bad. Well, we're not we're all on this side of prison cells. We can't be that bad. Look at us. We're all moral citizens. We're all here. We all none of us got pulled over in our cars searched, I assume, on the way over here. And none of us are killing people. None of us are doing all of these things that maybe we would assign big vices to. Compensating for great vices, he says. And so sometimes we can imagine, others can imagine, the world can imagine God is nothing more than a magnified one of us who's just as complacent and just kind of lets people in. Universalism just lets everybody in. Just whoever, just come on in. God, yeah, it's okay. We're just going to let, let the standard down. Come on in. So number one, the first truth that grace presupposes you are completely and utterly depraved apart from God. Absolutely depraved. There is no, this will be another truth that's coming. We don't want to let the cat out of the bag. This is in, in the tulip. This is total depravity. You are utterly and completely depraved. On your own, you have no ability to do anything that would merit favor with God. Number two, that's, that is apart from Jesus. Okay, that is apart from Jesus. That is as a non-Christian. Okay, non-Christian. Number two, the retributive justice of God. Retributive justice of God. We don't really believe 
that God enacts justice for sin. We don't really believe that God is going to judge this sin. As small as we might think that our sins are, we don't actually believe God is going to judge this. But to believe and trust in grace, we have to believe that God will judge sin. We don't believe in God as judge of all the earth. That's the second truth that grace presupposes. The third one is the spiritual impotence of man. This is what I was saying just a few minutes ago. To mend our own relationship with God, regaining God's favor after having lost it is beyond the power of any one of us. We have to believe that to believe in grace. For faith in God's grace to be possible. We have to believe that we are spiritually impotent. We have to believe that God will be just and that man is utterly depraved. Lastly, we have to believe that God is completely sovereign. We have to believe that the sovereign in the sovereign freedom of God. God is not obliged to help us or love us. He does not owe it to anyone to save them or stop justice from happening. God is not obliged to do anything in your favor at all. And you are utterly depraved and utterly unable to come to him at all. And God will judge your sins. If we are sitting here and we don't have the rest of, we don't have scripture to come along and tell us passages like Ephesians 1, we're sitting here going, rats. (laughs) If this is true, what Packer is saying, rats, because I have no hope. I'm utterly depraved. I can't do anything about it. God is completely sovereign. God's going to judge every sin that I've ever done, even though I think they're small. Back to Ephesians 1. So this, this is our task then, because this passage is exuding grace to us. And that, that exuding of grace draws us to worship. And so we want to see as we are going to take a trip through redemptive history. We're going to take a trip so beginning in Genesis 1. We want to see who it is that God is and who it is that we are. This is helpful because as we are people of grace, as we wholeheartedly cling to grace, without it, we got nothing. We have no hope. We have absolutely nothing to look forward to, and we wouldn't be here today. We need grace. What we want, if there's anything that we come away with, is we want to see more of Jesus and more of grace in this time. Okay? You're like, well, I don't really feel like it right now. You're kind of talking like we're, yeah, that's the whole point. Let's go to Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, because we're going to be going through all of the Old Testament on a brief trip as we look at redemptive history. We began Genesis 1, God creating the world. Then we have God, and on the sixth day, he creates man. God and Adam in the garden. This is the reality that man is supposed to enjoy. This is the intimacy that God is wanting. He created you for. He created you for this intimacy with him. He created you to enjoy this reality with him. He created you to worship him. And then God, after he creates man, plants a garden and he puts man in it. But God does all of the work. He causes a spring to come up. He makes trees come up. And Adam is in there to work and cultivate and keep the garden. And he has access to every tree in the whole garden. Except one. Every tree in the garden, except one. And the focus of the serpent is on the one. And so the serpent deceives Eve by the one. How many trees are in the garden? I don't know. But it's just one. Just don't go near it. You have every other tree in the garden. And yet here is mankind being deceived into, I want that one. Who's going to tell me I can't have that one? Is God holding back from me something good? I I would like to actually decide for myself what I would like to do. And I would like the one that I cannot have. And so they take the one and they eat. And she gives it to her husband and he eats. And their eyes are opened. And they see we're naked. And oh no, God has seen this. And God comes looking for them. 
And this is the story in which we live now. God comes looking for us and we're sinning and we're hiding and we're running. And after that, it just escalates. So that by Genesis chapter 6, we have only one man, it seems like, in the whole history or in all of humanity at the time who is righteous. His name is Noah. And so God comes to him. God remembers Noah. God comes to Noah and says, I want you to build a boat because I've actually I've seen that you are righteous. And so Noah builds a boat and eight people are saved through the waters that destroy everyone. Well, everything should be fine from then, right? Mankind should have Noah and his family probably learned their lesson. And they, they're probably on the moral path to doing what's right. And they're going to set everything straight. It's absolutely wrong. It, it continues in the same way. And even in Noah's family, immediately after the floodwaters go down. Then chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. You have all of the people who are around at the time saying, Hey, before anything happens, let's get together and build a tower to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. A man left to himself, without those four presuppositions of grace that we looked at the beginning, man left to himself, this is exactly what he's going to do. There's something that I can't have, or there's someone who's higher than me, and I want it, and I'm going to get it. And guys, we're going to devise a plan to do it. Enter Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 3, as man and the serpent and the woman are punished and cursed, God gives a slight, which you probably don't catch it if you're reading Genesis for the first time. You've never been in church. You're probably like, I don't understand, like a seed, okay, whatever. And then you're just reading, and then you get to Genesis 12, and it's probably not until Matthew 1 that you realize, oh, seed maybe meant a person, and a person maybe Jesus. And so as you're reading, there's a slight point of grace in chapter 3, and in chapter 12. Bam. Grace. God calls this person Abram. He says, I want you to do this and I will 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 do this. Grace upon grace upon grace. For what? Nothing. Just just obey. I want you just to be mine. I'm calling you and your family. And so then from there we get the people of Israel and the people of Israel then go into the land of Egypt, which is actually God's grace to them because they were going to die and there's a, a famine that God caused, but they were going to die if they stayed in the land of and where they were. And so they go into Israel and then they're starting to grow and they're starting to become bigger, which is God's blessing on them and God fulfilling his promise to them. And they start to grow and grow. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh is saying, these people are getting really big. We've got to put we've got to put a wrap on this. So we've got to close this down. This is going to be a problem. And so let's put them into captivity. Let's make them our slaves and put them to work for us. And so. They do that and they start to be mean and torture them. And the people are crying out, God, you're our God and we want to be your people. But look, we're in this land and Moses is coming to deliver them. And then God, miraculous plague after another, all of a sudden delivers the people by means of the Red Sea. He doesn't provide boats so they can sail across and he doesn't have a bridge so they can walk across. He splits the water so they walk across on dry ground. Talk about grace that God is giving to his people. I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to do it in such a miraculous way. That can you imagine these miracles like this that God has already done? They get out onto the other side and immediately what starts happening? They start doing exactly what every other person in all of humanity before has done. They start complaining and thinking that they can do something better. God, I got a better idea. How about you send us back to Egypt? Because there we were actually eating good food. And out here we've got nothing. That's a better idea. God, can you send us back there? Oh, yeah, to those people with the 900 chariots that chased you into the sea. You want to go back there? Good. That's a great idea. Let's go back there. And these people just, I got a better idea. I'm smarter than God. I can do everything on my own. And left to their own devices, this is exactly what they would do. And God is gracious and he leads them through. Let me read Genesis 15. Exodus 15. The song of Moses right after they come out of the Red Sea. Moses in Exodus 15:13. This whole song, he's just praising God for his power and what God has done. He says, 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. In your chesed, your steadfast love, your covenant-keeping love. We would see that as our New Testament, our modern-day word of grace. In your grace, God, you have done this for the people that you have redeemed. You have given grace to them. Did they deserve it? Absolutely not. No one ever did deserve it. And yet God freely of his own sovereign plan decided to love them and grace them and call them his. And constantly they're begging and they're and they're bickering and becoming bitter about the food and the water. And God realizes, not that he needed to learn anything, but it seems clear to us as we read that these miracles that God is doing isn't really doing anything for these people. God delivers them by splitting the waters. Okay, he split a sea in half and he let them walk across on dry ground. And they come out immediately and they start having other plans. He provides food for them that comes from the sky. He lets makes all these birds when they start complaining about the food, he has these birds come in and they, he just makes them hover right there. So they're real easy prey. He brings water out of rocks. He does all of these things. He graces them with all of this and these miracles and these people just keep going back to their own devices and they keep going back to following after their own way into their own sin realizing that these miracles are not the normal means that god uses to bring people to himself this we see this all throughout scripture that god uses miracles all of the time and people are always wanting a sign from god Jesus came, didn't he? He came in a pretty miraculous way. Did some pretty miraculous things. Miracles are not the normal means that God uses to bring people to himself. So then as we move through the Old Testament, we have these whole books on the sacrificial system. It's a means of grace that God gives them to atone for their sins. You sinned for a whole year. I want you to come and I want you to come once a year and I want you to bring a sacrifice. And I want you to have the priests kill it and its blood will atone for your sins for this year. God didn't have to set up a system to atone for their sins. God didn't have to allow atonement. He didn't have to allow it to be this. He could have said, I will. I want your life. I want I want this from you. But in this way, God is showing them that sin will be punished. Sin must be punished by a life. And it's nothing that you can do. It has to be someone else doing it for you. And so God in the sacrificial system is giving us completely this picture of Jesus who is to come. Who will be far greater than any sacrifice Israel ever saw. Or any lamb that they raised. Here comes the lamb of God to die for them. So here are these people giving grace constantly throughout their whole being and their from the beginning of the inception of their people, from all of humanity, there is grace. And, and remember, these are people that they don't have a written scripture that they can just go to and read and pick which part they want to go to. They're hearing these stories from their fathers and from their family, how God is doing these things and God is being gracious. Israel continues to go after other gods. They continue To seek after what they want. And so they ask God to provide kings for them. And they demand a king. And then they hate the rule of the king. And the king is supposed to lead the people into worshiping God. As he's supposed to have the whole law read for the people. He is the one who is to lead the people into worship. You have even kings like David. Who is after God's own heart. David penning much of the Psalms. And. Yet David fails. And you have Solomon. And Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon fails. Then you have prophets who come one after another urging the people through the message of God to return to God. Return to God. He is being gracious by bringing me to you to return to God. On our own, we won't do that. 
We need God to be gracious to call us back to him. The language of the prophets is heightened to this fantastic language as you read some of these books in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets. And you read of these, this amazing language and language of, strangely enough, even of like torture, desolation and persecution and trouble that comes if you don't repent. All of this as a means of grace to warn the people. If, if my overwhelming love for you is not going to win you back to me, then I will warn you and I will judge you because I love you and I want to be gracious. Similar to how parents act with their children. And then as I'm, I'm thinking through this process, this history of redemption, and thinking about if we really want to know more of God's grace, and this passage in Ephesians 1, it's all about grace coming to us through Jesus. If we really want to know more about this, and, and, and that's our desire, I, I was thinking of this parable in Mark chapter 12. You have a, a wealthy landowner. The landowner buys a piece of land, and he hires tenants to take care of the land. And the tenants at harvest time are supposed to send fruit from the land to the landowner. That's what you get when you own land. You get the fruit of the land and you get the money for that. And the tenants are just workers. They don't own it. They can't say what happens to this. And so the landowner sends a servant to go get the fruit that they're supposed to get back. Imagine there's probably more than one person. I don't know. There's a lot of fruit and you're traveling on horses and things like that. And uh, you can tell my knowledge of transporting fruit back in those days is excellent. And um, so he sends a servant and they beat the servant and they send him away. So he sends another servant and they kill that one. So the landowner sends another servant and they beat him and they act shamefully towards him. He sends another. And if you go to Mark chapter 12, I don't know if you're like me, but you're reading this and you're like, dude, stop sending people. Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Like he stops after four servants, he just says, and so with many others. This happened to a lot of people. The landowner keeps sending people, and they keep killing him, sending them back, or sending them back, beating them and sending them back, or killing them. Verse 6 of Mark 12. He, the landowner, had still one other. A beloved son. And you're like, no, are you kidding? They do this to every servant. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. God is sending prophet after prophet. Leader for Israel, kings, judges, prophets, people to draw them back. And they keep disregarding the message and they beat them and kill them and finally enter jesus matthew chapter one then jesus comes and you're like no because we know what has been happening and it doesn't seem to make sense until we read mark chapter 12 in this parable and you're like enter jesus galatians 4 4 but when the fullness of time had come what fullness? What was full? When the exact perfect time came, God couldn't have it, couldn't stand it anymore. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What will the wealthy landowner do when when, they, when he sends the son, when he finds out that they killed his son, he will come and he will condemn them. He will kill them. What does God do? God sends his son and he kills his son for them. 
for the wicked tenants who killed everyone else before who killed his son. Who are the who are the wicked tenants? And it's until we realize that we are the wicked tenants, that we are the people of Israel who constantly spurn everything God gives us, who apart from the work of Jesus through the spirit who is constantly pleading with you, you won't care a lick about God and you will run the exact opposite way from him. And we must need his grace. We need the grace of Jesus. Born of, the vir- born of a virgin and of the spirit. Jesus, the fulfillment of every promise. Promise made to Satan in Genesis 3. Promises made to Abraham, Moses, David, and to the people of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus, the very son of God who elected you before the foundation of the world. Who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus, fully eternal God, takes on full humanity for the sole purpose of dying on a cross to accomplish your redemption for the fulfillment of God's purposes for all time. Jesus comes, the wealthy landowner sends his son because the people need him to come. Jesus wouldn't come if we were perfect. Jesus comes because we need a perfect sacrifice. We need a sacrifice because of our sins. I want to read Colossians 1, which is similar to our text in Ephesians, and then we'll get into our text in Ephesians. But Colossians 1 gives very similar to our text, as I said, but it also gives our position before Christ, who Christ is, who Jesus is, and then what Jesus does. So in our text in Ephesians, we have what Jesus does for us. And we stand amazed. Colossians 1 gives us who you were, who Jesus was, and then what Jesus does. Colossians 1, we'll start in verse 13. And we'll read through verse 22. Like how I did that. It's a way of extending things so people think it's going to be shorter than it is. Oh, I can handle it until 2022. Okay, Colossians 1, verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Okay, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Okay, we were in the domain of darkness. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We needed we needed forgiveness. We sinned. Okay, domain of darkness. We needed forgiveness in him. Colossians 1:15. Now he goes on to who Jesus is is he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth the visible and the invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he jesus is before all things and by him all things hold together He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have in all all of his fullness, all of God's fullness, dwell in Jesus, dwell in him. And through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here we go. Two more verses on who we were. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. Isn't that amazing? This is who we were. Okay, We were wicked tenants. We were people who were hostile in our minds towards him. And, and then this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. He is first of all things. He is the beginning. It doesn't even say he was in the beginning. He is the beginning. He creates all things. All things hold together because of him. He does everything. Everything that's created, everything that is, it's all because of Jesus. But you're hostile. And yet 
Jesus reconciles you by his physical body through his death. Can you stand amazed at that? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So that's, that's our text. But we needed some background to remind us of who we are. And what are these presuppositions of grace? What are these promises we have to hold to? if We're going to claim to believe in grace. This text tells us two main things. I get it from the main, two main verbs in these verses. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verb 1, we have redemption. Jesus redeems. Number 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Number 2, Jesus lavishes grace. This text, Jesus does two things. Jesus redeems and Jesus lavishes grace. In all wisdom and insight, continuing till the end here of these verses, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Some of those verses sound strikingly similar to Colossians maybe because they have the same author. But strikingly similar as we look at this person, Jesus, and what he has done for us. So the title of your message you see in your bulletin is Blessed Be Jesus. That's all we want to do here today. For the rest of our time now is we want to bless Jesus for what he has done. This text is a doxology. We, we began, Chad led us in verse 3, two weeks ago. Blessed be God. It's still going. And now we can enter, Blessed be Jesus. Because he has redeemed us. This is worship. This is worship for Paul. I imagine everything else is just somebody else is in the room talking to him as this explosion happens in the introduction. And he's just, I, I got to get this. You know, it's like giving a guy a new gadget and then try and have a meaningful conversation with him. You know, it's like iPhone. <laughs> Honey, what? You know, it's like give guy food. And then try and have a meaningful conversation with him. Just, there's worship over this. And Paul is just exploding on the page for us. And I hope that's what happens for us as we read. We see here how Jesus redeems. It says, uh, point number one is Jesus redeems. How does he do it? Jesus redeems through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus redeems through his blood. We have lots of ways to buy things in the United States today. Lots of ways to purchase things. You can buy something with cash or a credit card or a debit card and pay for it right there. All of it in full. Pay for it. You can also pay with a credit card. And you know in 30 days that's going to come, come due or at least a small part of it will. And you can just slowly for the next 30 years pay off that gadget. Okay? You can also pay... And I'm sad to say, I've done this before. You can pay by layaway. Okay? Anyone ever enjoy the process of layaway like I do? I did. Sorry. have not used it for since uh, my senior year of high school. I worked in a retail shop uh, that were named Nameless uh, Value City. And there was something there that I needed. Okay? And I didn't want anyone else to steal it or buy it. And so I had to put it in layaway because I was in high school. I didn't have all the money for it. And uh, but I, I wanted this as a suit. OK, I wanted this suit. And um, so I put it in layaway. Layaway is great. You just I don't know how much you put down. It, it's like 10 percent, you know, and then you come back every month. And since I worked there, you know, it was easy. I just did it while I'm at lunch break or something. I could just pay it slowly. But the funny thing about layaway is have you put several items in layaway? You're probably all like, what's layaway? Um, but for the redneck like me, uh, layaway, if you put several items in there, you, you go back and you pay for it over the, course of, over the course of several, several months. And then when you get it all, you're like, really? I, I wanted this. I don't remember picking this out. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever do layaway and then do that? Okay. I'm here by myself. So, but I did that. And I was like, I didn't want this tie. I thought I picked a different tie. I could have sworn it was a different tie than this. 
And it's like, I just paid for this thing. Like over the course of several months, I'm going there every time giving them a few dollars to try and get this that I didn't even want. Anyway, we have all of these ways to purchase something. You can now even buy a mattress at certain stores and not pay for it for three years. Isn't that amazing? You can sleep on the bed for three years. It might even break. You might give it away to somebody. And then all of a sudden, you start getting something in the mail saying you owe them for that mattress. What mattress did we buy three years ago? Can you imagine that? We have all these ways of purchasing something, but none of it's by our blood. Absolutely none of it requires your life. You never pay for something. It's illegal now to give a kidney on eBay. You can't give away part of your body and get paid for that. You can't cut off an arm and say, I'd like to donate it to you. How much would you give me for it? It's a good arm. It's treating me really well and it's strong. And uh, don't laugh. And you can't do that. Okay, so this idea, if you think about it, you image this. Jesus is paying by blood. The idea of blood it makes some people queasy. And it's disgusting. We, we have special chemicals to clean it up because we don't want to touch it. It carries uh, diseases sometimes. And we, don't, we don't want that on us. We don't want to touch somebody else's blood. And yet somehow our sins are washed away by blood. We are cleansed by blood, by Jesus dying. We are redeemed. He redeemed us by his blood. He redeemed us by dying. He did more than give a percentage, a down payment for your salvation. He did more than just I'll give 10% now and then I'll pay the rest later for this guy. He gave it all. He paid it all for you. He paid it with his own life. Think of the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Some other verses, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. How strange. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus redeems us. And he did so by blood. Secondly, Jesus lavishes grace. Jesus lavishes grace by himself providing redemption, by forgiving our sins. But then also, it says in our text that he does so in all wisdom and insight. He does so by giving us the ability to understand this is God's will, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So Jesus lavishes grace on us, giving us the ability to understand this is the mystery of God's will right now. God, through the redemptive, through redemptive history, has been working all of this so that the climax of all of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and sin and grace comes to a head at Jesus. And Jesus is the climax. He is everything for us. So that we might understand that God is setting forth this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. We'll see later in the book of Ephesians that this uniting of all things is Gentiles and Jews. And uniting them into the same body. And now we see that even today, that uniting all people of all races into the same body to the universal body of Christ, of which we saw in Colossians that Jesus is the head of. The one who died is the head. He is... It's just amazing to me. And so we thank God for this grace that we see Jesus lavishing on. The image there of Him over abundantly just providing this grace to you. He's not 
meeting it out in tokens. Everything you have is from God's grace because of Jesus. He lavished grace. His lavished grace gives you what you didn't even know you wanted. And the only thing you really need. His grace is sufficient for everything and his grace lacks in nothing. We don't know this because we don't really understand grace. We don't really understand often Jesus' grace that he has given to us. And so that's why we still live in this already not yet and still live in this struggle. Because we, we have grace and we're thankful for grace and we give theological assent to a knowledge of grace. And yet this idea of like Colossians 1 and this Jesus redeeming and everything for us, Jesus everything, doesn't factor in. I got, I got grace and yes, I still want to worship other things. I still would like to worship a, a job, a career change. I still like to worship technology or what I have. I want to worship longevity of life. And I want, to, I want to worship health and wealth. And I want to worship happiness. And So give me grace, but make sure I get all these other things too. We don't realize that all of those other things aren't grace. What you have in Jesus is all you need in grace. God is kind to give us uh, many things throughout common grace. We make the distinction between common grace and saving grace. But what we need is Jesus. That's all we need. And so there's application. Four. Four application today. As we close. Application number one. Is Jesus redeems. That was point one, too. But application number one is Jesus redeems. Remember, go home and just think about the redemption of Jesus that he provided for you by his blood. Jesus redeems. He has redeemed you. That is application for us. Number two. Anybody say it? Number two. With point two. Jesus lavishes grace. You're like, boy, you got off easy this week. Your application is your point. We got two more coming. Jesus lavishes grace. That if, that changes how I look at what I have and what happens. What happens in our life is the lavishing of God's grace to you. He is lovingly pursuing you. He is calling you to himself. He is using his servants to bring you back and he sent his son to die for you to call you to himself. Number three, application. Read your Bible. You're like, this is easy. We want to learn more of this grace. We want to live more in this grace. We, we come in here and we sing of grace. And the struggle is we go out there and we go home. And the second you leave this room, or maybe even now, you're sitting there and you're not gracious. And you're not reveling in grace and jesus is i got problems i can't think of jesus redeems right now because i'm sick and tired of the person there or i got beef with so and so or at work they're driving me nuts or i'm angry all the time because whatever i don't i don't want redemption i don't want grace i want to get through this You need to read your Bible. That's what you need to do. You need to read our Bible because in our Bible, as we have seen throughout the whole history of redemption, it's all grace. All grace to people who don't deserve it. And so as we read, whether we're in the prophets, whether we're in Psalms or Proverbs, we're seeing grace given to people who don't deserve it. And that changes how I now look at you and you. And I I look at you as people who don't deserve grace. And you were given it. And you people who are loved by God so much that he sent his only son, the beloved, to die for you. But read your Bible. Don't set a goal too high. Don't say, I'm going to read it every day for a half hour. Because you won't. Don't set a goal too high. Just read it more than you did last week. Last week, I didn't read it all. 
Read it once. Two minutes. That's more than you did last week. And then the next week, read it more than you did this week. Just read your Bible. Come to Jesus. Remember, Jesus redeems. He lavishes us with grace. And read your Bible. Fourthly. Fourthly. My son's learning how to do fingers. And I just, fourthly. Talk about Jesus. If Jesus redeemed you and he lavishes you with grace and you're reading his word, you, just, you can't help but talk about it. But even before all of that happens, all of, all of that works its way in your heart and through you, talk about Jesus. Again, don't set a goal too high. Everyone I meet for the next 85 weeks, I'm going to talk to them. It would be a good idea, but you won't do it. Okay? Don't set a goal too high. Just talk to one more person than you did last week. Talk to one more person than you did last month. Talk to one person. Talk to your husband, your friend, your child. Talk to anybody. And just tell them how Jesus redeemed you. Have you ever done that with somebody? Just tell them how Jesus redeemed you. Can you, can you just tell me how you, how you came to know Jesus as your Savior? Can you imagine the conversations that happen with that? I listen to a, uh, a podcast frequently. That's the first question this guy asks of everyone he interviews. These people write tons of books and they're well known. And he just says, uh, first question, I just want to know, how did you come to know Jesus? And I'm like, that, yes, that's all I want to know about you. I want to, I want to get to know you, but I want to know how, how have you met Jesus? And how? how? That encourages us. Talk to people about Jesus. Tell people about when you came to know Jesus. That's an encouragement to them. Let's do that this week in our community group. There might be someone sitting in your group who's been there for a year. You have no idea how they came to know Christ. You don't even know if they know Christ. You're just assuming they do because they come to the community group. Ask them. How, how did you meet Jesus? And, and think about the details. Think about the details of, of when it was. And I was reading this book this week on uh, Date Your Wife. And the guy was talking about, think about the first date you ever had with your wife. And think about all the details. I was like, why don't I think about the details? When I'm thinking about the details, I'm thinking about her. (laughs) What was she wearing? What did she look like? What did she say? Who introduced us? When we were on those steps at Camp Lucerne, and she's in a gray, grayish, greenish jumper, and I saw her face for the very first time. She no longer has the jumper, praise the Lord. But when I saw her face for the very first time, I'm thinking about details. And I'm thinking about Sarah. And I love Sarah. And my heart starts to bubble over for her. And, and, and I'm working at FedEx, and I, I want to just go see her. Think about the details of when you got redeemed. And, and not like, what, what, what is the color of the... Like, that's imp- that just brings it out. It makes the picture in color instead of black and white. And then tell someone. And just tell them about Jesus and what he's done for you. That's it. Read your Bible this week and tell people about Jesus. You do that. I pray that as we think about God, how God has redeemed us, how God lavishes grace on us, and we take these chances to be able to read that throughout the Word, that that just infuses us, not with this superficial, I've got to get to know my neighborhood, work in my community, and do all this stuff, because you're, gonna, you're just going to fall apart with all of these do's, do's, do's. But when you are in love with Jesus, and you, just, you can't wait to tell people about it, you can't wait to talk about it. So can we, this week, just talk about Jesus? Talk about what He's done for us? I pray we can. I pray that that changes our hearts towards Him, reveling in grace, and also changes our hearts to one another. As you talk about Jesus, you're not going to be talking about you really bother me with what you... No, here's what Jesus did for me this week. What bothered... Oh, I don't even remember anymore because I was... Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus coming, for Jesus who came and he willingly gave himself to the point of death for us. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He holds all things by the word of his power. He created all things. He is the beginning. He is the one to whom all things point to. He is the one who all things will be wrapped up in with the consummation of all things when he returns. And yet he willingly came, born to a lowly family, suffered and died for us. 
And he lavishes grace on us continually. Like this today, to remind us of what he has done. So that we return, so that we come back and we, out of spontaneous hearts of gratitude, worship and love. So God, pray that we would do that, that we would just worship. And our worship would push us into relationship, into love. And our love and relationship with one another would continue to fuel our worship and our theology. We pray that, God, you would be gracious as we continue to worship you, Jesus, our Redeemer and our Savior, God. Continue to draw our hearts and encourage and fuel us as we need it. We need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.